1: The verse we're looking at now is Revelation nineteen eleven. Jesus is faithful and true.
0: Oh, welcome to Reaching Your Heart. Pastor Michael Oksentenko will be here in just a moment with today's message. You know, here at Reaching Your Heart, we believe that God answers prayer. If you need prayer, please call us today at 888-244-HOPE. That's 888-244-4673. Someone is here now to take your prayer request. And thank you so much for listening. Today's broadcast with Pastor Michael Oxentenko is entitled Faithful and True. We brought you the first portion of this broadcast to the last time we were together. We will complete it now. And remember, you can find it online as well at reachingyourheart.com. Faithful and true. Here's Pastor Mike.
1: And God's name and God's character, they're all the same. And Jesus Christ came as the only messenger who can reveal what is in the heart of God. Friend, God is much more concerned with granting you clemency than he is with judging you for your sin. Did you hear me? That is his primary concern. He wants to save you as universally important to him. And Jesus is proof that God put you before your sin when Christ died for your sin. At the cross, there is a pardon, a blood pardon for every person who will bow down and call Jesus Lord and God as Father. And whosoever of John 3:16, that person is the person who comes to Jesus. Peter writes a corollary to John 3:16 to 17 when he describes the love of God for atheists. You heard me. Now, the whosoever, should it include atheists? Yes or no? It should. God loves the atheists like Dr. Sam Harris and. Lawrence Krauss and Neil deGrasse Tyson, some of these famous names we hear in our culture. And according to Peter, the end of the world has not yet come because he's projecting into the future because God wants to save every atheist. Therefore, he is forbearing toward them. Turn with me to 2 Peter 3, verse 3. I want to go through this a little bit with you. Our sermon is a little bit of a Bible study today, so get your Bibles out. 2 Peter 3, verse 3. Peter says, first of all, you must understand this. I like it when the Bible says, I need to understand something. I want an informed faith. He said, you must understand this, that scoffers will come when, When does the text say? In the last days. So he's not talking about his days, he's talking about the time of the end. And what will they do? He says, with scoffing. So he uses the word twice, scoffers will come with scoffing, following their own passions. And that means they're really irrational, even though they try to look intelligent. In verse 4, he specifically identifies these scoffers who are intellectuals at the time of the end. That God wants to save. He gives us the clues to figuring it out. Peter first describes their belief system by telling us in advance what they would say and teach. Now go to verse 4. Here it is. Let's follow it. Here's what they say. And saying, where is the promise of his coming? So number one, they deny prophecy. They denied the Bible proclamation that Jesus Christ would come at the end of the age. They laugh at the Christian faith. Now, anybody in the Christian church or out of the Christian church it starts telling me Daniel Revelation don't matter. They're fulfilling verse 4. They're scoffers. They go on. They get more scientific. For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things have continued as they were from the beginning of creation. And that's the key principle. Here, Peter asserts that these end-time scoffers in the modern atheistic world maybe a few Christian ones too, would posit the present idea of uniformitarianism. That is the idea of long ages in which natural law does not allow any change or variation for causation, so all change is gradual. It is the way it was. Things don't change. Graduation is the rule. Thus they teach that the processes are all small along the long timeline from the ancient past to the present. There is no variation in natural law. And why do they do this? To do this they negate the idea that God can intervene in history decisively and impose his will. You See if you buy into the principle of uniformitarianism, God can't mess with it, it's the way it is. This false scientific principle of uniformitarianism gave rise to the modern theory of evolution, geology, to modern cosmology, and it has been used eloquently to deny the flood story and the creation of the world by a creator. So Peter focuses in on this intellectual denial almost 2,000 years before it would arise in its end-time form, just before Jesus' return. Here he describes the claims of men like Dr. Richard Dawkins, Dr. Sam Harris, Dr. Lawrence Krauss, among others. Verse 5, they deliberately ignore this fact that by the word of God, heavens existed long ago, and an earth formed out of water and by means of water. He says they deny the creation of the earth from a water void. Verse six, through which the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. So, two things they deny they deny the creation of the earth in seven days, and they deny the flood story. He says that would be what these intellectuals would teach at the time of the end. They deny the veracity of the Bible by doing this in the prophetic witness. Verse 7 But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist have been stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. The ungodly men in the context are the scoffers who deny God, who posit the principles of uniformitarianism in modern science to explain away the flood and the creation story. I don't know about you, but I've been studying recently. I now know that the evolutionists agree there was a global flood, did you know that? How many of you are aware of that? The evolutionists agree there was a global flood. The Chicxulub meteorite impact in the Yucatan Peninsula has been found through magnetic resonance imaging. It was a 20, perhaps 20 kilometer wide meteor that hit the Atlantic Ocean at the time of the dinosaurs. It created a super tsunami, a mile high, moving at supersonic speeds, and it hit the continents as the fountains of the deep exploded, literally. And that's how the Bible says the flood started. The Bible doesn't say the flood started because it started raining. It says the ocean exploded. And that meteorite impact devastated the world. It took life out on planet Earth, probably 80% of life, they postulate. And I've read descriptions of that meteorite impact. They say, well, you know, if you couldn't swim or if you couldn't live under the water, you're probably dead. Well, that's a flood, right? The difference is the long ages, the uniformitarian presupposition they bring to bear. If you don't have the long ages, that's the event. Now, I don't have time to prove it to you, but I have biblical evidence that's very sound that the Bible indicates that that meteorite impact caused Noah's flood. And one of these days I'll share it with you. I've already alluded to it in a previous sermon. The ungodly men in the present era deny that the Bible and science can be unified if we follow the timeline correctly without improper assumptions. Verse 8, now Peter is speaking to all of us, but do not ignore this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness. Now, I like this. You know, if you have a pen, do you ever mark up your Bible? Do you? Well, this is one you can kind of underline it. But is forbearing toward you. Now, what is God toward us? He's forbearing. That means he's patient. He puts up with things. But is forbearing toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That means God loves the atheist and the unbeliever and the Christian too. And he waits for everyone to be saved until there's no chance. That's when the end comes, when hearts harden to where it won't work anymore. God is a patient deity. We've all done a little whining in our lives, and I'm sure you have too. And God is patient with us as we grow but one day patience will not help us because the heart will become heavy and hardened to the world and in that day when Jesus' spirit can no longer strive with men the end will come evil will turn on good and it'll look like God's people will die on the face of earth and in that night of darkness Jesus will appear in the clouds of heaven verses 10 through 11 but the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away like a loud noise and the elements will be dissolved with fire and the earth and the works that are upon it will be burned up now that's no secret rapture That's a devastating end to world history. When Jesus comes, we have a climactic break into the world as we know it, and the world as we know it comes to an end so the new one can begin. Verse 11, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of persons ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? You know, the call here is for us to know God, to live for him, to have our lives aligned with him. And The Bible teaches that God loves the atheist and the scoffer, the unbeliever, and you too. And he waits for all to be saved, so he is forbearing toward us all. When the judgment finally comes at the time of the end, Jesus will come for his bride in Revelation 19, and the harlot Babylon will be judged. He'll say no to the harlot, he'll say yes to his bride, and with the harlot, the whole world will be judged. So we must align with Jesus and his bride. Revelation 19, 8, God sends his end-time church, precious truths, and he gives the gift of a robe of righteousness that is to prepare her for the marriage supper of the Lamb. No one can come into the kingdom of God without the gift of Christ' righteousness represented by righteous living, righteous deeds. Friend, I want to say this forthrightly to you. And I want to pause and I want you to hear me. The cross of Christ is our only legal and moral right to eternity. Did you hear me? Amen. It is our only legal and moral right to eternity. Look at Revelation 19:9. 9. And the angel said to me, "Write this: Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb." And he said to me, "These are true words of God." Now my translation got it wrong there. The Greek text has also the definite article combining the noun for words and the adjective for true into a single statement. Literally, this is what it says. These are the true words of God. Now, we have learned that God's judgments are just and true. And here, we learn that God's words are true. I mean, take your Bible in your hand. Pick it up. I want you to pick it up and hold it and open it where you can look at it a little bit. Are you looking at it? How many of you have your Bible in your hand? You're looking at it? Now, what do you see on the pages when you open your Bible? What do you see? Words based on that verse, are these words trustworthy and true? What does it say? They're trustworthy and true. So dear heart, when someone tells you they're not, whose word are you going to take? God's word or their word? We have learned that God's judgments are just and true. His character must be true. But his word, the Bible is true. The book of Revelation is true. Do you want some of that truth in your life? Then open the Bible and let it work for you. Let the true words of God be food for you in your life. In Revelation 19.10, John wanted to worship an angel because he was blown away by the supernatural glory of the angel. He fell down to worship, and the angel said, don't do it. Get back to the word of God. Look at Revelation 19.10. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brethren who hold to the, what does it say? The testimony of Jesus. So the word of God is not just words, it's the testimony of Jesus. Christ is speaking through his word. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now based on that verse, can you leave prophecy out of your walk with God? No. All scripture is prophetic. It is the testimony of Jesus. It is the spirit of prophecy that has given us this. God's spirit is evident. If you can't worship an angel, and it's very clear the angel said don't do it. Then what business do we have worshiping Mary or the saints or anything like that? Would that make any sense? No. The angel said, worship God and pay attention to his word, which is the testimony of Jesus. Let's look at that verse and let's analyze it a little bit to get a grip on it. If the word of God is the testimony of Jesus, then Jesus is God. Does that make sense? If the word of God is the testimony of Jesus, then Jesus is God, that's the simplest way to prove the divinity of Christ. In the Old Testament, Jesus has many names, but one of them is the word of God. Turn to Genesis 15, verse 1. Here, Christ is appearing to Abram in his existent form. After these things, the word of the Lord came into Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram. I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. Now, it's very interesting. The text says, Saying... And at first, when I looked at this, I didn't think the RSV had it. It does. The Hebrew says the same. The word of the Lord is a person who speaks, and he speaks directly to Abram. And suddenly, the word of the Lord is alive. In John 1, 1, you've read it. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. In John 1, 2, he was in the beginning with God. The word is alive. In John 1, 3, he tells us that he, the word, created the universe all of us in John 1 4 the word he is personal he is the life that we need the spiritual life is the word in John 1 4 to 5 in him was life the life was the light of men the light shines in the darkness the darkness has not overcome it John tells us in John 1 14, that Jesus is the light of God in human flesh the Shekinah glory of God the word that becomes encapsulated in a human being but nonetheless the eternal word of God John 1, 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled in the Greek, full of grace and truth. And then it gets personal. He says, we beheld his glory. Glory as the only son from the father. The Bible says God is light in 1 John 1, 1.5. In Psalms 119.105, God's word is a lamp and a light. The only God, dear heart, you will ever know is the light of God you see on the face of Jesus Christ. He is the way to the unknown father. So God's word is in Jesus. And when you accept his word, the Bible, at that very moment, if you accept it as his word, you are accepting Jesus Christ. If you reject the Bible as the word of God, you are rejecting Jesus Christ. We need to take the word of God into our lives because we need Jesus inside our lives. I've been engaged in a research project for the past few years And I say this humbly, not to blow my own horn or anything, because God gives us good things. It doesn't come from us. This research will overturn the false theory of thought inspiration held by some who no longer believe that God can carry his word in final form so that it is faithful and true. I believe with the servant of the Lord to this church that the divine mind is diffused into the minds of the prophets, and thus the utterances of these men of God become the word of God.
0: Pastor Michael Oxentenka will be back in just a moment. Reaching Your Heart is a listener-funded program. We step out in faith to purchase airtime on this station because we believe God is working through this radio ministry to touch tens of thousands of lives. Each of our messages is prayed over, biblical messages of hope and Bible truth. To continue, we need your support. We do not have a large ministry fundraising machine. We operate totally by faith. Call our toll-free number to make your contribution of any size today. That number is 888-244-HOPE. That's
1: 888-244-4673. Here now, once again, Pastor Michael Tenko. The gift of prophecy is not an inferior gift to the gift of tongues, as these philosopher king theologians would have us believe. As the proponents of a theory of thought inspiration would have us believe that was never known in the history of the Christian church, was never known in antiquity by the prophets, was never espoused in the Old and New Testaments, that never was taught by the early church fathers who still follow the Bible or the Reformation or the proponents in the early Advent movement, a view foreign to us. Now think about it. In the gift of tongues, which is really the gift of real languages— the Holy Spirit works in the mind to exchange words, words you've never learned, to create words in the brokaw and worry areas of the brain so that a new language comes out of the person's mouth. Is that a marvelous supernatural gift or not? It's an amazing gift. And yet they would have us believe that the gift of prophecy is inferior to the gift of tongues. Friend, there is no less power in the process of prophetic inspiration and transmission of God's word than the gift of tongues. It is a higher gift that God is utterly in control of his word from the time he impresses the prophet to the time he lands in canonical final form for his people. In fact, the process of inspiration is guided by the living Christ. Peter calls him the living and abiding word of God. We now have empirical proof that the Bible is one, as if it was written at one point in time, even though it wasn't. You see, in a real sense, the servant of the Lord tells us The Bible was given to us as a gift in the mind of God from eternity. And it comes to us in its final form in the last days, and we are to take it as it reads. It is intentional. Friend, the Bible is God's gift for us that was ready for us in Jesus, mediated through the power of Christ through the centuries to come to us today. So in the book of Revelation, there's only one person who can open the book of mystery. All heaven is weeping because no one is found worthy to open the scroll. And suddenly one is found worthy, the Lion of the tribe of Judah is worthy. Jesus Christ, the Lamb, He comes and takes the scroll of mystery that no one can open. And dear heart, we have a Bible in our hand today because the Lamb took the scroll from the one who sits upon the throne. Revelation nineteen eleven. then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat upon it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. This verse... Unites all of Revelation 19. We should dwell upon it. All that concerns God and his word, we find it coming to a head right here. Let's look at the key verses. Number one, we saw in Revelation 19 too, God's character is revealed at the end of the investigative judgment as true and just. For his judgments are true and just. He has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication. And he has avenged on her the blood of his servants. God is true and just. Number two, Revelation 19, verse 9, here God's words are true in every way. The text says, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Number three, the verse we're looking at now is Revelation 19, 11. Jesus is faithful and true. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he was set upon it. It's called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Let's put it together. Revelation 19-1, Revelation 19-9 combine in Jesus Christ in Revelation nineteen eleven. What does it mean? It means Jesus is the Word of God, and Jesus is the truth of God. The Bible's not just about the Bible, it's about Jesus. Jesus died for us on the cross of Calvary, dear heart. It's the greatest truth of our lives. It's the clearest picture of God we can ever have. God is on trial because of the attacks of Lucifer, and Jesus Christ is the proof that God is love and that God loves every one of us, and that God is faithful and true on the final day, when God will judge the world, and the intelligent universe will say, "You are a good God." Friend, God's judgments are just in Revelation 19:2. Jesus is righteous in Revelation 19:11, and thus He can bring the world to an end. In the book of Hebrews, the Bible describes Jesus in the same way as we see here in Revelation 19. Turn to Hebrews 4, verses 12 to 13. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And notice what it says here. It doesn't say before it. Verse 13, and before him. You see, the word is alive. No creature is hidden, but all are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. When you open your Bible, there are eyes looking back at you. The Bible is alive. Revelation 19, 12 to 13 is based on this passage in Hebrews. He, meaning Jesus, his eyes are flaming fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name inscribed which no one knows but himself. He is clad in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God. Let's go to the cross as we come to gather our thoughts. Dear heart, at the cross we see the blood. And at the cross we know that God is faithful and true at last. We see those eyes that are red, crying and weeping for the world. At the cross we see the law of God clearer than we can ever see it at Mount Sinai. The Ten Commandment law of love and the character of God, the darkness of the cross, the groans and cries of the cross for every sin and every sinner from Adam to the end, love finds a way at the cross. At the cross, we see Jesus, the divine word that became flesh and dwelt among us, torn to pieces, his flesh bleeding, and we see and hear him saying, pleading with his Father who loves us, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And in the darkness of the cross where Jesus is suffering for every sin of ours and others. We see the light and the glory and the darkness of the cross. We see the light and glory of a God who loves us, who is faithful and true as he sheds his precious blood for each one of us to show us all the love of his Father God in the darkness of the cross, the unseen God. And dear heart, when you open your Bible to cast your human infallible eyes Upon its sacred pages, its supernatural words, to feed on the life of Jesus. May you never, ever forget that the eyes that are looking back at you from the living Word of God in your Bible are the eyes of Jesus. They are the eyes that are like fire that shed many a tear on the cross for you, so that you can experience the joy of clemency and mercy and forgiveness and kindness that comes from God to you as a gift. Friend, I say this on the authority of God's word and the evidence therein. God is just and true. Jesus' words are the true words of God. And Jesus is faithful and true because Jesus is the word of God.
0: Amen. Thank you so much for listening today to Reaching Your Heart. Remember that you can listen to this message again online at reachingyourheart.com. That's reachingyourheart.com. We invite you to spend some time on that website. There's many other messages available there for you as well. And thank you so much for listening today. Have you ever wondered what happens five minutes after death? Do you long for the assurance of eternal life? Is there a longing in your heart for something beyond this life? Dark Tunnels and Bright Lights by Mark Finley is the message of hope that you need. This book presents the real truth about life after death And it is more amazing than you can imagine. Call for your copy today. Here's the information you need. The telephone number is 855-888-4673. 855-888-4673. 855-888-HOPE. Or you can go to the website reachingyourheart.com. Call for your copy today. The book is yours for a donation of any size. And remember that your donations help to keep this ministry on the air. And we thank you for your support. And we hope that you'll join us again next time we get together for another edition of Reaching Your Heart.